Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Theo Fennell, the London jeweller. Theo opened his studio in the 1970s on London's Fulham Road, and for over 40 years he's been designing and making his own original beautiful jewellery and silverware by hand in his workshop and studio in London's Fulham Road. His attention to detail is what sets him apart from other jewellers, this and his acute understanding of craftsmanship and materials. Theo, welcome. I just wondered if you could start just by telling us a bit about you and what you do for work. I I design and make jewellery and silverware. I guess is the simplest explanation. Um, I do like to think of those disciplines as much broader than they're probably generally thought of. Uh, And I came to do what I do from perhaps the unusual uh, starting point of art school in the very late 60s, early 70s, when there was a sort of bursting out of, of creativity and guess new art forms in a way and, and, and new things thought of as really a, a creative job. I mean, through the 60s, there was very, very little in the way of a creative job that wasn't terribly obvious. Uh, you could be an artist, you could be an art teacher, you could, I guess, design China, but it was a very limited and very narrow field. But suddenly there were all sorts of new disciplines and new things that, that, that needed designing, whether it be book covers or re- record covers, whether it was clothes, whether it was day-to-day household goods. Suddenly there was this sort of uh, explosion of design uh, with the Conrad shop and those sort of places opening. Suddenly we had boutiques in High Street, having just had Dun & Co and you know, Marks and Spencer's, suddenly there were all these new things and people didn't just go and buy white china, they started to look at china uh, in a different way. And when I went to art school, suddenly the, the, the things they were teaching had multiplied no end. So I got there just thinking I was going to paint and draw because I assume that's what art school did, having had a little bit of a, a battle to get to art school with teachers and with my parents and what have you, to find that there was this plethora of choice and I went and did a one-year course, a foundation course at York Art School, which couldn't have been a better place to have started because they were doing everything. So I did photography, a bit of pottery, a bit of sculpture. I did a bit of commercial design, book covers, fabric design, all sorts of things. And they taught me all sorts of techniques. They taught me about perspective. They taught me how to do uh, writing, how to do signposts, everything. It was just a fantastic year. However, what it did do is confuse me even further. I'd started off when I got there. I'd got there having a pretty kind of uh, fixed idea of what I wanted to do. And I ended it being a sort of bad songwriter, bad poet, bad painter, bad drawer, bad everything, but lots of different things I could do, all of which I was sort of fascinated by, but most of which I was pretty inept at. But I could draw reasonably well, and I left with the old-fashioned dip AD with no clue of what I was going to do at all, absolutely none. In fact, if anything, as I say, less, less decided than I had been a year before. And I got offered a job. In fact, the only job I got offered to the, to the sort of uh, worry of my family and friends who just thought I was unemployable, uh, and in fact, they, they proved right. Um, but I, I took a job with some wonderful silversmiths called Edward Barnard's in Hatton Garden, who were a very, very old-fashioned bunch of craftsmen making the best silver in the world. Extraordinary, traditional, and brilliant. And they offered me a job to my amazement. So I took it because that was the only job I was ever going to get offered. 
And for the first weeks, all I did really was look at repairs that came in and learn about when things have been made and, and, and more of the sort of academic side of it. But then after a month or two, they sent me down to the workshops, which were down at the end of this building. It was like TARDIS that sort of opened up to this huge workshop. And the moment I walked in, it was, uh, it was an epiphany. I just saw everybody hammering away, spinning away, polishing away, engraving away, doing all these things that I didn't really know existed. I didn't I really ever looked at a bit of silver and thought, how do they make that anymore? And I really looked at a car and thought, how do they make that? It was just sort of something that, that was there that you knew by some sort of osmosis that sort of appeared in your, in your, uh, in your consciousness. But then I suddenly thought, well, they're just taking a lump of metal that's been pulled out of the ground by miners in Peru or wherever, bought over here, flattened out, alloyed, and then all these different techniques are used to make a pair of candlesticks, to make a trophy, to make, you know, so there was suddenly, after I'd been there about six weeks, the FA Cup came in for repair. And, and I realized that it wasn't just the making of it, but it was the sort of historic heft that silver had, you know, we got things that have been on Charles the first dinner table. You know, these extraordinary things began to appear. And I began to sense not this that I loved the processes and I loved the design and the craftsmanship, but I loved the kind of the history and the amount of emotional and historical heft these things could have, even new things, because they, they borrowed so much as clothes do as as, as uh, painting does as sculptures do from this extraordinary tradition built up by craftsmen and I began to think about craftsmanship in a way that I really hadn't ever considered it I'd seen thatchers thatching I'd seen I presume I'd seen coopers you know making barrels I'd seen carpenters making things but I'd never really thought about the, the, the place of, of craftsmanship in our, in our lives. And I began to go to cathedrals, to churches, to look around at just how many different skills were used to make a cathedral, uh, you know, from stained glass window makers to stone masons, to wood carvers, to engravers, to the people who made the, the, the fabrics and the extraordinary kind of clothes, to the people who made the the crucifixes on the altar to the people who made the communion bugs. Suddenly there was this extraordinary kind of bonding of multi, multifarious skills with extraordinary people. And I began to see, both from their work and from what they produced and from talking to many of them, the different kind of skills and the different sort of levels of patience or levels of exuberance needed to do these different things. You know, some needed unbelievably detailed and, and, and uh, extraordinary tenacious skills. Others were much more kind of uh, uh, explosive, but they all worked together to produce one thing, in this case, a cathedral, that nobody really took the credit for other than the craftsmen. All the, the individuals teamed together to be this big cooperative that together took uh, the credit for it and delighted in it. I really found myself wanting to produce pieces that needed this level of, 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 of involvement 
of a team of a sort of repertory company of craftspeople. And really by chance, that first job in, in Barnard's got me into Hatton Garden where I was surrounded by this, especially in those days when there was much more of it than there is now. And with the wonderful characters and the wonderful kind of, the wonderful friendships they had and the inclusiveness they had for everybody who is part of this, literally this guild, this kind of, of, of brothers and sisters. It was, it was amazing. I loved it. And did you make something while you were there yourself? What was the first thing you made, just as a matter of interest? Well, because I was sort of, I'd really been taken on as a sort of generally creative person who they felt could be front-facing, as they say nowadays, and be the sort of um, acceptable face of their company, rather than a sort of hoary old craftsman coming out ill-shaven and dirty-handed. So to begin with, I was very much in that stream, but they saw soon that I was getting much more involved with, I suppose you'd now call him a designer, but he was really, he was known as Eric the Artist, who just sat up on the third floor and did the drawings of what the other people made. So they were a combination between illustrations for the client and technical drawings for the craftsman, who really didn't need much in the way of technical drawings. They knew what he meant, they just sort of, off they went. Um, so I got much more involved with what he was doing than what they, they were doing in the workshop. So I sort of started out on a kind of voluntary apprenticeship. And the first actual physical creative job I was given, other than doing some drawings and sketches every now and again, was to replace the hind offside leg of a lead model of a cow that then became a cream jug up in the sort of Eerie, where they kept all the master patterns, which went back hundreds of years. I mean, hundreds of years. Uh, there were lots of them that were made in lead and, and held together with wire that were then used to cast from. But over the years, they'd lost bits and pieces. So this one had lost its leg. And so I had to make the opposite leg in wax to these existing leg, which if I say so myself, I did quite a good job of. I actually surprised myself because I said, yeah, I can do that. And then thought, Jesus, I've got no chance. I don't know how to work in wax. I've never worked in wax. It's going to be terrible. It's like working in plasticine. You know, it's going to come out like a sort of Mr. Blobby type thing. But funnily enough, I sort of learned. And Eric sort of said to me, just wait for it to dry a bit, wait for it to dry a bit, put some more oil on, carve it away. And then in the end, there was this thing that, that surprised me, but didn't surprise the people who asked me to do it. They just assumed, as every craftsman did, that people could do things. Like you join, a, you, know, you join an orchestra sort of slightly to the back door saying you're a musician. And then when you can play the trumpet, they don't go, that's amazing. They go, well, sure, that's what you do. So I, I, I came in at quite a high level, unexpectedly. And from there, I got to get do other little jobs, which are incredibly important. So I got to learn how spinning was done, how casting was done, how engravers engraved, how polish, you know, all, all the different techniques used to make silver, some of which have been added to now with obviously with new techniques. But I got to learn absolutely from the ground up. I wonder if that cow still exists with your leg. Foot and mouth disease, probably, I don't know. I, I don't know, but if it does, no, do you know, funnily enough, it doesn't because Barnards were taken over by a bank at some stage and they sort of asset stripped it, took back the property as these things happen. And all of its uh, master patterns things were sold off and DNA were given quite a lot. And quite a few people got some of them. 
So in fact, now you remind me that I might go to one of the people who has the most of them and see if my counselling still exists. You set up um, Theo Fennell, it was is it in 1972 or four? Well, in 74, I left uh, Barnard, 74, 75, because much as I loved it, I, I really couldn't see a future for any modern thinking or any contemporary design or anything new. It was wonderfully rooted in the past, and it was still making copies of you know, Queen Anne, Queen Anne uh, teapots, and it was still making trophies and copies of trophies from the 19th century. It was wonderful stuff. But funny enough, one day for a pair, an 18-carat gold, very rare for things to be made in 18-carat gold, champagne flute came in. And just engraved on the side of it, it said, in somebody's handwriting, facsimiled, good morning, Diana. I thought, this is such a cool thing. Some man, it was 1932, so someone in the 30s, some young swain had obviously given some flapper uh, this gold champagne flute with Good Morning Diana for her breakfast or her glass of champagne in bed. And I just thought, that's so cool in every sense. And it's so wonderfully degenerate. And it just sort of opened up my eyes to how much was possible. And Barnard's had turned down a Japanese client for making a whole lot of goblets that he wanted slightly erotic but not overtly so and they just sort of got rid of him and I, and I turned down the street very naughty and said I can make these for you if you want so he gave me the order uh, and I left Barnard's and I only place I could find as a workshop come studio whatever was over the road in a place called Colonial Buildings where there was a man obviously unable to afford the whole suite he had so I took over half I mean we, we had a desk each in this room, but attached to it was a workshop, a jewelry workshop. And that just came with the premises. So I became a sort of de facto landlord to um, a man called Fritz, Fritz the jeweler, who was an extraordinary man. Small, knotty, little Sudeten man who had fled from Czechoslovakia in, in 1938 and come to England and was the last man I ever met who could make something like, say, a bee brooch, a ruby and diamond bee brooch, cutting all the stones, milling out and making the mount, every single thing, setting the stones, polishing it, engraving it from start to finish. You literally take a lump of metal, a lump of stone, and hey, presto, a week later, there was a bee brooch. Every little bit he did. And he was a, an artist. Unfortunately, he was also a raving pisshead. And the problem with this is that, that, that he got there at seven in the morning, as many jewelers did very early. And Charlie the drunk, who was another character, would come around and buy him his breakfast. He then worked till half past two, right the way through. And then he put a cloth over the piece he was making and just went down to the pub until they closed in the night, or you know, nine o'clock, whenever he was able to stand up. And then he'd come back very late and start to try and remake this thing. So I learned. Sometimes he'd come back at three, so I never knew when he was going to be back. But I learned to substitute this brooch for just another brooch that became his sort of, you know, his fake brooch that he destroyed, stuck knives in and threw around the room when he was pissed. And then the next morning, I'd put the other one out. He'd come back and finish that. But he taught me an unbelievable amount of basics and running around the various workshops to get other things done, get engraving done here or casting done there blue glass liners in one place, wooden plinths in others. All these places I had to go to, outworkers, 
little tiny workshops with brilliant craftspeople. Each one I stayed in, they let me sort of sit there for a bit and watch and you know, join in and things. So really during those two years, I not only started to design and, and make a few pieces, but much more importantly, know how everything was made and where to get things done, where to buy stones, where to, you know, the best craftspeople were. And, and they enjoyed much more working with a you know, one man designer, which there were very few in those days, than they did, um, you know, with a big conglomerate or a big bunch of stores or what have you. So I realized pretty soon that, that the only way I was going to be able to survive, because I was running around seeing clients in the evening, having a drink here, a drink there, seeing another client, having another drink here. So by the time I got home every night, it was probably, you know, 11 o'clock and I was not in a good way. And then they want to see me at lunchtime, but nobody wanted to come over to Hatton Garden. They all worked, you know. Occasionally, I go over and see them in the city because it was quite close, but they didn't really want to come to workshop. But those who did were so enamored of it and so fascinated by it that I kind of understood that the only way I wanted to be involved in jewelry and silverware, to be there in the studio with the workshop next door. And if there was a shop or a gallery, that would be attached to it. And I realized the power of my customers, my clients, seeing it actually being made and being involved in that process. And that led to not just making things for people. And I used to, you know, in the early days, I was making sort of silver brooches that we would make many of and sell them down the Portobello Road or sell them, you know, that sort of stuff. And then gradually, customers of mine began to say, could you make this or would you design me this or design me that? And they were, to begin with, you know, friends of my parents, they were an older generation. But then it occurred to me that the younger generation for the first time was making a lot of money. They were making money in music business, in uh, show business. They were making money out of owning shops, out of being designers, out of clothes. And all the running around became impossible. So I decided to open a shop. And I have to say, I had no idea what I was doing at all, none. I had no idea about cash flow. I had no idea about, you know. So I teamed up with a friend of mine who just passed his accountancy exams, I think at about the 35th attempt. And a friend of mine who had a shop down the road selling Provencal linen. I thought, well, he knows how to run the shop. It never occurred to me, why did it close down the shop each <laughs> way? And <laughs> we really didn't know what we were doing at all. We were incredibly enthusiastic. We were incredibly passionate about what we were doing. And we just went out all the time to meet people because there was no social media. This little shop had, in the basement, had the workshop and a little polishing shop and an engraving uh, bench. And we had uh, a little studio. And on the ground floor, it was the old Victoria wine shop. We had this little shop. And then gradually we took on the shop next door. We moved upwards so the studio could at least be in the daylight. And it was really to begin with, people. I guess, wanting to buy things that were original. Uh, we only made our own pieces and we only sold our own pieces. Everything was in 18 karat gold. We were using big, bright stones that nobody had used before, like you know, peridots and tourmalines and things that people obviously know now and they're very popular, but nobody was using them. I mean, it's, it's, it's strange to remember that when I opened the shop, even when I opened the shop, which was a few years on, sort of early 80s, there was only one Tiffany store in the entire world. There was only one Van Cleef and Arpel, only two Bulgari stores in the entire world. 
There was no such thing as, as Louis Vuitton, except for luggage. There was no such thing as Gucci, apart from for shoes, saddles. You know, none of this had happened. And Cartier was owned by two different people. You know, and they were independent shops, three of them, selling, you know, all sorts of stuff, but not branded, not that kind of stuff at all. The, the idea of a branded business hadn't come. And the idea of jewelry designers, I mean, you know, if you put jewelry designer on your passport, people would say, there's no such thing, mate. You know, uh, it's like saying, you know, you're an ice melter or something. You know, it's obviously ice melts, but there's no such. So it was really kind of a, a strange thing. And so we were, apart from the kind of slightly older generation, like Andrew Greemer, maybe Charles the Temple, and those people who were, you know, applying their trade in German Street and, and, and Bond Street, but we're sort of, you know, 10 years easily ahead of me, there was no one. So we, we sort of started out the, this strange kind of hybrid of designer, jeweler, and silversmith with the workshop and using these unusual stones and big, bold things. And our clientele was a brand new clientele. It was young people who had money, who wanted something different, who didn't want a sour and diamond cluster, who didn't want a string of pearls or a gate bracelet or pearl studs or whatever. They wanted something more exuberant. And added to which, men and women. And as that sounds odd, but I mean, men buying for themselves. We had from the word go, a big gay following. The first men really who bought jewelry for themselves. And we had a big uh, female following of women who had been for years, the recipients of jewelry bought by very kind of dull men, but had always been told that buying your own jewelry was kind of like paying for your own dinner on your own or whatever. It was, it was genuinely thought of as very weird. But there were these women who were making a lot of money, who were very, very self-sufficient, had their own ideas of what they wanted. And they certainly wanted to get that from Nigel or whoever it was. So we had this fantastically exuberant clientele. And we just had this very, very you know, amusing and experimental clientele, along with you know, people I'd known all my life and parents and things who wanted you know, classics, but were prepared to go for classics with a bit of a twist, you know, to show they were a bit trendy. And yeah, or yes, as they say, you know, some fab designs for them, whatever. And it was just a, a, a very good meeting point. And of course, there were an awful lot of the people uh, who, when the twain met, as it were, you could have some incredibly funny. I remember uh, we had a brigadier one day with his Labrador sitting in the corner, picking up some pearls for his, his daughter's 21st birthday present. And we put a little sort of extra thing on the back because she loved bees, I think, or dragonflies. And we put a little thing dangling down at the back and what have you. Uh, and Ozzy Osbourne came in. He sounded like a troika. He was shaking so much, so much jewelry. It was this sort of jangling. He was in full kind of Aussie outfit, you know, with black glasses. <laughs> and he came in and his, his brigadier looks at him simply couldn't work out what he was, let alone who he was. He was, there was a look of complete incomprehension over his face. And as he said, and of course, the first thing he wanted to do was go to the loo for reasons I can only guess at, but he was taken off to the loo. And this old brigadier said to me, should I know who that is? And I said, I, I don't think so, sir. Perhaps your daughter might know. He said, who is he? And I said, um, his name is Ozzy Osbourne. He said, oh, Deep Purple. And I was so amazed. I was absolutely amazed. I said, Extraordinary. Yeah, well, they are. He said, oh, my daughter will be so thrilled. 
do you mind if I say hello to him? He comes back. He went, oh, he went, no, it's doggy, but the... And um, off he went. He said, who was that bloke? He was a brigadier. She said, oh, I thought so, yeah. Uh, anyway, so we had this very, very weird... But we had a few of those kind of crossovers, as it were. But but it was just... It was sublime being able to make these things for people, both uh, as stock, just stuff we made, flights of fantasy that people came in and bought, and pieces that they would come in and, you know, commission. Um, they'd come in and commission pieces and I sit down with them we and they would go as far as you had to go to 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 um, allow us to do this stuff so we were incredibly lucky and you know we had a clientele that, that loved craftsmanship they loved to learn about it to talk about it and say you know the great late Simon Corlicker who worked for me for 35 years before he died last year one of the great craftsmen that I ever ever met and we worked together for all that time they'd come in they'd say Simon made this and you know, they were thrilled to meet the guys that were doing it and the girls that were doing it. And it was just a, a lovely kind of atmosphere. And they were so kind and generous to us because they went out and they told people. And we had all sorts of people from, you know, the very straightest and most classical to the most flagrantly theatrical in the world. And they all told other people. They weren't jealous of saying, this is a little jeweler, I want to keep him. I mean, a lot of people do nowadays, a lot of people, but they, they, because they were also creatives, they, they were incredibly generous with, you know, giving our name to people and getting people to come in and bringing them in, in fact, which is great. So I was very lucky. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing at all. And quite categorically, if that hadn't happened, I mean, we had so many false starts and so many kind of disasters and, um, you know, things you couldn't even believe now. Even a sort of 12-year-old would know more about cash flow than we did. You know, we have this company, it's a sort of, an idea more than anything else called the Leopards, which is four of us jewelry designers, along with Carol Wilson uh, from Vogue and Susan Farmer, who's you know, been in the trade for, forever. She won't mind me saying that. But, you know, me and, and, and Solange Azaguri and uh, Stephen Webster and Sean Lee. So the four of us have this thing, you know, we meet a lot to try and get more kids into the trade not just going to art school and learning about conceptual design, which I'm afraid to say is very prevalent at the moment, but really learning how jewellery is made, how to draw it and how to, or at least produce some visual sign, design, that they can give to craftsmen or be the craftsmen themselves. It's when craftsmanship is, is, is part of it. You, you have this sort of mutual respect and they've all had the same one way or the other. At some stage, they've had the same problem, that, that idea of, it's a dichotomy. You know, if you're really interested in just making huge amounts of money or whether you really want to do something that you love and do it well and earn a certain amount of money, that time when everybody wanted to have a great big global brand rolling out, whatever, a lot of very, very good designers and a lot of very, very good creative people lost their way and found their companies trampled on and, and ruined by by the money boys. Has there been a change from that um, drive to be a global brand to one that's much more focused around the product, you know, the thing you make? Yes. I think the, the you know, w we, we look at things that appear to be a kind of permanent shift, an infinite shift, and we look back and suddenly they've gone. You know, who would have thought the Soviet Union would only last 70 years? You know, who would have thought that Bassi Bar Station would only last 30? These things that seem very permanent. And I think when I came into this trade, as I said, there wasn't any branding at all. 
And you looked at a piece and you said, that is so beautiful. It must be by whoever it might have been. Now it's got this name plastered all over it. In fact, sometimes the name is the piece. And I don't think anybody would have had the paucity of creative thought who call themselves a designer for those great brands to produce some of the things they produced, you know, and rely on their branding for the design. And I think people have just got fed up with the idea that, that well, the, of the cynicism of the big brands, whose obviously their, their intention, and, and it's, it's, it's a very, very obvious one, is to make things for as little as they possibly can and sell them for the most they possibly can and use advertising to make people think they want them. And this idea of lifestyle frightens the hell out of me. The idea of us being, as it were, dragooned into a way of life uh, that shows us to be successful by having to have this and having to have that and having the new whatever it is. And you think, well, what kind of characters are these people who aren't thinking, I want to have the freedom that success brings me, whether it be financial success or success in another way. You know, it's like people who live in Monte Carlo. You think, well, hang on, if you've got all that money, why wouldn't you just want to live wherever you want to live? And surely it can't be there. You know, it's a strange, strange attitude to freedom. The most important thing we all have suddenly seems to take second place to a kind of imprisonment of brand. You know, I'm wearing this watch. Oh, so am I. Great. You know, suddenly you're a, a follower, not a leader. And I think for a certain amount of time, that kind of seduction can work. But then you find out that it's a very, very cynical boyfriend or girlfriend or lover, or whatever. Well, they're going to leave me or I'm going to get bored of this because they're so dominant. You know, they won't leave me alone. I'm being pestered night and day to go to this restaurant, to eat this food, to drive this car, to do whatever it is. I don't want to do that. I'm now sophisticated enough, grown up enough, and sure of my own taste, my own style enough to invent it for myself, to choose a bit here, to choose a bit there. I can go around all these people that I really like, look at young designers, look at other people's stuff, and have stuff made for me. Because the great, the great wealth generators uh, of the general times did just that. They were amazing. Uh, patrons of the arts and of craft and of, of, of craft personship. They really were. And in the end, we think of them as, oh, you know, so they all went to Fabergé in the end, but they didn't. You know, Fabergé was started up because people really loved that kind of stuff. If he'd made 500 identical eggs, none of those people would have bought them. You know, the great jewelry that Cartier made was that jewelry made from a man to his mistress, those fabulous things they made, they were all individual. You know, look at those things, that people going to their tailor to have a suit made for them, choosing the material themselves, styling it for themselves, having a pocket where they wanted it, not just going and buying some outrageously overpriced suit that doesn't quite fit them. You know, it, it, it's, and that, I think suddenly people are realizing that they can look a bit silly, just branded up to the eyeballs, you know, wearing things that don't quite fit that they've probably been sensationally overcharged for. People have started to go, I would rather get something, even my cheese, from a man in the second village down the road who makes his own cheese with a bit of straw stuck to the top. And I'd rather pay 25 pounds for a lump of cheese. I know the provenance of, I know the care and the passion that went into it. And I know the guy. And it's a story. 
it's part of me, this cheese. They'd rather do that than just go into the world's finest cheesery and just be told by somebody what they should buy. You know, they want to get involved in it. They want to sort of be able to say when someone says, God, that's a nice ring or a nice pair of cufflinks or that's a beautiful candlestick. You go, yeah, funny enough, let me tell you about it. It's a story. It's something that's personal. It's something that they've become involved with. And that's the great gift of craftsmanship is it involves not just the craftsperson, but it involves the owner of the piece. Yeah, absolutely right. There's been a remarkable change in, in the way that people perceive things and appreciate things, but I wonder how widespread this is. Well, I, I think things always start on the whole at the top and percolate down. I mean, I just think that's the way that things go. So I think to begin with, to sustain craftspeople, it has to be the top that starts doing that. And then you have affordable craftsmanship where things are wonderfully finished. You probably can't afford to make a pair of shoes from scratch, uh, you know, for a, for a price affordable for most people. What you can do is raise everybody's expectation again to thinking if I bear, buy a pair of shoes, these should last and I can get them resold because I love them and they're beautiful and they're wonderfully finished. Because what's happened in so many aspects of both service and uh, consumer is that we've come to be prepared to go for second best, third best, to accept it, whether it's service in restaurants, where it's flying on an aeroplane, whether it's a pair of shoes that fall apart, whether it's uh, poorly made food, all those things. We, in our own kind of uh, uh, unconscious way, have gone, okay, that'll do. And even at the very top, you have very, very famous brands that make things that really are appallingly shoddy, you know, made in God knows where by God knows who. And yet, because many of those things are so uh, obsolete so quickly, you never get to know that they'd fall apart after six months. And I think what people are doing with the whole kind of push towards sustainability and towards having things beautifully made and using the right materials are thinking, if I have a suit made for me, I could have this in 10 years' time, and it would still fit me, and it would still be beautifully cut, as great suits should be. They're made for that. Great pair of shoes. You know, great wines will lay down and lie. All these things. Suddenly, when I was a, when I were a lad, when I was young, and I used to fly out to places like, if you believe it, Kuala Lumpur, in the 50s, when I was a boy, on my own, only with somebody from um, Universal Arts, who are these old biddies that all look like Michael Rutherford, like um, Margaret Rutherford, and wore tweeds, even in kind of, you know, Karachi or whatever, would come and pick you up and put you on the plane, whatever. Flying in a BOAC aeroplane was literally like going to the Ritz. It was wonderful. You were looked after. Everybody, you know, sort of took you from A to B, things which everything was made as easy as it possibly could. And, and that's what everybody who flew expected. And then suddenly you told, no, not there, go over there. No, wait, have I told you that? And you think, really? I, I, I kind of think I'm the, the customer here. But, you know, suddenly now, far from it being the customer who's always right, it's kind of the salesperson who's always right. And the amount of, of, of back talk we're prepared to put up with just in the service industries 
is extraordinary. So when you get really great service now, you go, my God, that was amazing. But it was kind of par for the course. And the same happened with how things are made. You know, whatever people get away with, it started with, obviously, with huge mass production in the 60s, I guess. And we all kind of went, well, okay, you know, if that's the way it is, then, yeah, I'll have one of those, I suppose. I think people suddenly realize that they're paying top dollar for bottom product. They want to be paying top dollar for top product. And the only way you know what is top product is by learning. It's all our jobs who are, if you like, in the industry of craftsmanship and what is loosely called luxury. But, you know, there's another thing that uh, really it isn't, except in a few kind of gold uh, um, examples. Watch trade has done it brilliantly. You know, it's, it's taught people about, but they're normally kind of, of, of rich man's playgrounds. Our job, all of us who are involved in this, is to teach not just craftspeople how to do it, and not just for the next generation and the other generations, but teach the customers of craftsmen about it so that they are, you know, aficionados, so they know what they're looking for, so they can be part of it. When you're working with a jewellery client, for example, what's the, the process? They come in and say, oh, I want a ring or yeah, tiara. I, mean, or... I, I think probably now, as distinct from when I started, they have a rough idea of what I do and that I might be the person to fulfill what they want. So there's already a certain level of empathy when they come in. Occasionally people have been pushed in this direction by wives or whatever, and, and so, so they're not quite as, as malleable as somebody who's made that choice themselves. And it's then really, you know, wh who it's for, what it is, the very basic things. And if they say it's a pair of earrings for my wife's 40th birthday or 30th, whatever it is, you're getting an idea of what the person is like. Obviously, when is that birthday? Because you're always going to be uh, bound by time and, 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 and um, you know, how, many, how, how long these things may take to make. And then obviously by budget. And so you'd be surprised how many people don't ask that very early on. So you can actually have, uh, uh, you know, watched people I work with spending two hours with somebody. Then they go, God, that sounds absolutely wonderful. How much will that cost? And then they go, what? Are you mad? They've got 500 pounds or whatever it is. So you need to get that out of the way very early as you do with anybody. You know, uh, if, if you're looking for to go into a travel agent, they say, where do you want to go? You say, America. The first question they should ask is, you know, how much do you want to pay? If you say a pound, you know, the conversation is probably not the same as if you say, I don't care. So those very pragmatic things and slightly embarrassing things to people who aren't deeply involved in trade, uh, I've always found intensely embarrassing. You get those out of the way and then you start to judge whether, whether you can make this more as she would like it for him to get the credit from it or whether you know, how the, 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 the relationship is. When it's somebody for themselves, it's much easier. It's much more direct, much. But occasionally, you know, you have to feel you have to just push somebody into something a little more adventurous because I know how often girls can come back and say, why did you sell him these? And I say, no, no I, I, just, I wasn't like to do with it. She insisted. So can I swap them for those? And I said, well, let's once I show you, you know, whatever. Because, you know, when, when you have a knowledge of a person, when it's secondhand, you begin to understand how adventurous they are. And women are 
far more adventurous than men, and gay men are far more adventurous than most straight men. So, you know, there's a sort of pecking order. And then it's really a question of, of, of how much do they want to have to do with it? Do they want to be part of the whole process? Do they come to the workshop and see it progressing? Or would they rather go, you know, forget, just I trust you. And over the years, the latter has happened far more often. People have just said, I trust you, just do it. That, that's wonderful, obviously. It's wonderful. But do they appreciate the, the work that goes into the pieces? Because some of the work you do, are, I mean, the, the detail is quite mm. phenomenal, isn't it? And do your mm. clients appreciate that? Yes. I mean, I think some, some of, the, of, of the work we do has so much detail that you couldn't not. And what I like to do is, is take them up to the workshop and show them the piece being made. And I'm going, really, that happens? And, you know, we did another castle for somebody the other day and we showed them how the drawbridge came down in the castle and they were going who thought of that and i said not me sadly this craftsman i was sitting there going what are we going to do for it and he showed such a simple answer I mean, well i was about to think of that obviously um but you know so, so there is that kind of abs- sometimes though the detail can be so kind of part of our everyday life like enameling that, that they won't really understand how incredibly difficult guilloche enameling is or whatever so yeah part of the process is to teach them all the all the complexities and just how much has gone into it because in the end the ooh you get from a dinner table when you send round a castle ring with opening doors and enamel and opening top whatever is a lot lot bigger than a diamond ring that's cost five times as much and it's it's just much more breathtaking one is just a statement of wealth the other is a statement of, of, of style, of taste, of craftsmanship, of all those things. And has the process of making changed much? Are you using much more technology or are, all, you know, are things still made with waxes and moulds? And Pretty much we use the same techniques that, that I mean, you would recognise. If, if a craftsman from Elizabethan craftsman came back to our workshop, he would recognise immediately what it was. Mm terribly sure he'd recognize a garage but never no, he really would recognize it and the only the big change is obviously the obvious ones are using electricity using you know butane rather than just blowing uh i guess steel has made a, a difference to what you can do with various things but i suppose the biggest in in my lifetime the biggest change has been uh laser and computer technology so I suppose being able to solder weld with lasers rather than, than, than um, solder everything may seem like a small thing, but believe me, in our terms, it's probably the difference between, you know, uh, radiology and no radio, x-ray, you say, and no x-rays. It's just a fundamental huge change. And of course, computer technology, both for designing and technical drawings and also for 3D imaging, has been extraordinary advance, but only to a certain part of jewelry. You know, making by hand is still, I guess, the equivalent to an oil painting compared to a manipulated painting. So it would be the equivalent of Hockney's uh, iPad drawings compared to his actual charcoal drawings or his actual paintings. There's still, and will always be a, a sort of fundamental emotional difference between the two do the clients um, or do you regard these pieces as luxury well yes and no there are three schools of thought about jewelry and i think there are three areas of jewelry that, that exist taking it down to its bare minimum 
One is, if you like, power jewelry. There's always been power jewelry. I mean, it's most obvious uh, personification. Well, crownification is a crown. You know, an Auburn scepter, a crown, or it's obvious. And that goes to power jewelry, not just to show how powerful you are, but you have power over somebody else. When you give somebody a five million pound diamond, you're not really saying, I love you. You're saying, I am astonishingly rich. And this is how much I think of you. In fact, this is how much I own you, as it were. It's a very, very uneasy relationship, that relationship. And when it translates into daily terms of a big flat in London and a house with 500 acres in the country, it becomes sort of unrecognizable as, as a thing. It's just a, it is a power thing. And it's showing that you are a very big swinging thingy. At the bottom end is, is the jury there's always been, which is, if you like, just pure self-adornment. And that in every, every culture, however primitive, that has always been there. Whether it's, you know, bronze rings or, you know, things made out of plastic or stone or, you know, costume jewelry, whatever it is, it, it has a terrific place in our everyday life, but it's far more of an accessory. It's far more to do with fashion, far more to do with how we look every day, how it, it, it accessorizes the way we look. And I think one of the sadnesses is that's crept into the very expensive uh, term when it really there's no point in many of those things being in gold and stones. They might as well be in base metal and, you know, uh, crystal. But in the middle is the bit that I am most concerned with, that I love. And that, that is the, the jewelry that is made for a reason, really for a distinct reason. And how successful it is, is how well it fulfills that, that role. And those are pieces of jewelry that can be very sentimental, that can be historic, that can be celebratory. And obviously, an engagement ring is the absolute quintessence of that. And a, just a plain gold ring with, let's say, Regency writing in it, saying, this day did I marry thee, you know, 1795, a bit later, anyway, um, is still heart-stopping. One that says, this day did I marry, you know, 1237, it's even more heart-stopping. But something that is 2000 BC and for 4,000 years has been there as one person's lover's um, gift is almost, I become genuinely overcome sometimes. So the way people look at jewelry in a, in a museum, in a collection, the way they look at a, some jewelry, even in, 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 in auction or whatever, or that they have at home that's been handed down or has been made for a celebratory reason is that sort of jewelry. And the jewelry that is the kind of uh, the, the, the final result of great, great craftsmanship that may not have any still understood reason, but obviously has so much going on that it did have a reason. That's the jewelry that really uh, appeals to me. And I think that will always be kind of have a sort of a humanity to it, the other doesn't. So I would say at the top, it's luxurious in the way that it's not necessary, but shows that you're able 
to buy whatever you want, which is the sort of financial freedom that is luxurious. At the bottom end, the extra little piece of jewels that make up a thing is a little bit luxurious. And if you bought them from a big brand and overpaid, it has that sort of decadent um, luxury. But to me, if you were to say that dinner at the Ritz is an absolute luxury, because you could probably get much the same dinner anywhere else, but what you're paying for is to be looked after, to be fawned upon, to then the middle sort of jewelry can be that, but it could also be the same as a hot bath, undisturbed, with a book, two hours of just joy. And if that sort of jewelry, when you look at it, gives you that joy, that moment you sit and consider it and look at it, where somebody's not just made it well, the extra mile to make it perfect, then that's luxury. Luxury has become such a devalued idea. It's become expense. It's become about, you know, quite odious in many ways, actually. Luxury really is something that gives you consummate pleasure. It needn't cost very much, but is done or you do it to the absolute peak of its possibility. So do you then think that luxury and craftsmanship are linked? I think they can be. I think they can be because there are very few things that you couldn't get made by a machine, not as well or as beautifully or as uh, satisfyingly, but you could get a pair of shoes for £10. Why would you go and have the most beautiful shoes built for you that last you a lifetime? A, because it gives you enormous pleasure. B, because they do last a lifetime. And because they become part of your life. So that would certainly go under my umbrella of, of luxury, yes. Jewelry is not something that we, we need. Why do you think it resonates so much with, um, with people? I, I think uh, we do need it. And I don't need, mean for any kind of you know, life-saving or health-giving reasons. Um, I think some people believe they have health-giving. And obviously, you know, through the time of talismanic jewelry and, and, and jewelry in every kind of kind of arcane belief system has had its own signs and runes and jewelry and what have you. But I think it's that mystery and that uh, emotional heft that it has. It's as necessary to us as so many other things that enhance our lives. Our lives, I believe, would be diminished by its lack of, of, of presence. I wanted to ask you about you know, some of the pieces you make. I mean, you know, the, some of the rings that you make, the bullfighter or the Colosseum. What are the man hours in that? I mean, almost imponderable. I mean, the, the Colosseum is made by hand, and I think around about 150 hours to make the ring, around 50 hours to make the miniature ball, the miniature um, uh, gladiator, and then polishing and finishing, whatever. I, I, I suppose, yeah, we come to, to six weeks' work, 40 hours a week, non-stop on that. I mean, funnily enough, other things that appear more complicated are probably easier to make because the detail is all, as it were, superficial rather than inside. But 
the joy that goes into designing it, the joy that goes into its first idea, the first time you have the idea and the, the joy that goes into the craftsman's time making it all resonate. The box for the Colosseum ring took, well, it, it, six months in the making, but it took, I would think, around about the same, you know, 200 hours to make the marquetry, the insides, the whatever. The, the book of drawings and things, leather bind was you know, book binder made. The eyeglass that you hang around your uh, neck, the magnifying glass set in enamel and gold, whatever, it's probably another 50 hours. You know, it's, it's the whole thing. It's just a, it's a thing, <laughs> what can I tell you, that takes a long time to make. But, you know, all extraordinary materials, you know, lush gold and, and you know, the most beautiful, you know, even the, 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 the eyeglass was hand ground to be, so you could see it from a certain distance. All I know is that if you signed it, Damien Hurst, you could get three million for it. But if you sign it, through the greatest craftsman that ever lived, even though he uses great craftsmen to interpret his pieces, we can't get a fraction of that. And that's one of the strange ironies of craftsmanship. The one thing that is quite interesting is that those things are so labor intensive. And I was wondering, do the, I mean, is there a, a handwriting of the, of the craftsmen in each of their pieces? Yeah. You know, each craftsperson has a different, uh, a different style, a different feel. The way they manipulate their hands is different. I mean, I could give a job to three boys in a row down there, and the results would be would be very different. I mean, different enough probably for you to notice. And I mean, for me, you know, huge difference. So I always choose the right person for the job that would suit them and suit their attitude. You see, craftsmanship does take time. You can't just have mad dexterity and learn and learn and learn. You become incredibly competent. You become very, very, very good. To be a great craftsman, you have to have a particular type of mind. And it's a sort of mind that ingests design and ingests creativity, but only adds its own creative in something those hands can't help but do. With a great craftsperson, they need to have the manual dexterity. They need to have the patience and the tenacity, the strength, actually. But then they need to have something absolutely different that, that from the moment they get the drawing, from the moment I've talked to them, from the moment they start to do it, you can see the, the path that they're taking to do it. And sometimes even the order in which they make the composite pieces. And, you know, one look at the other and go, he's making the top first. You know, I wouldn't have done that. So there's no right way. There are obvious ways and there are right ways to teach people. But after that, it's, it's you know, same as the violinist. So it's, it's a very, very interesting thing that there are and always have been many very, very, very fine craftspeople in everything. And some that have transcended, you know, even the very top level, but very few who transcend that next level. And, and for instance, you know, George Daniels is one. I don't know how many people were making watches, making clocks, Tompion, you know, we, we can tell, you know, Cellini. There, there are people who are just have it. 
it's like a voice, like a whatever. And you can train them and train them and train them and they can be unbelievably competent, unbelievably good. And I don't suppose more than one in a hundred people would notice the difference. But I certainly, people who've really come to understand do. And that's, that's part of the wonder. I just have um, one more question for you. And that is what, what is your luxury? Well, my luxury on the whole is, is, is time. Is having time to do what I love doing. For me to sit in front of a great scene, whether it's rural or beach or anything, and sketch with music on and earphones, either on my own or with a friend or whatever, is a fantastic luxury. To spend time and having anything made, buying pictures and having them framed, not for very much money, but having them framed, just, but really well. I love really well-made things. Anything made really well and being able to afford it or to indulge in it, to me, is just a great, great luxury. You know, to the other day, I've been on a terrifying diet, but the other day I had some Rice Krispies and clotted cream with a bit of brown sugar over the top. Even now I'm salivating. For me, to sit in the garden on a beautiful day, eating that, just, you know, the lap of luxury. Brilliant. Theo Fennell, this has been um, fantastic as always. I love um, chatting to you. So thank you very much for joining us. Not at all. My pleasure. Thank you, Theo. And thank you to our partner, Intellect Books, to you for listening. And join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.